This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, August 9th, 2022 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellum. I'm Matthew Moore. A special legislative session is beginning today at the state capitol in Little Rock. The agenda is expected to include approving tax cuts and setting aside money for school safety improvements. Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics will talk with political columnist John Brummett about what he expects during the next few days during the special session. That conversation is in our second half hour today. In about eight minutes, how Arkansas is doing when it comes to taking care of children. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth will dig into the annual Kids Count Report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation and what the new numbers about Arkansas tell us. First, this past weekend, parents, guardians, and students shopped for school supplies in the nation's highest inflation and Northwest Arkansas's increased cost of living. KUAF's Anna Pope reports, organizations in the region aim to support parents and students to start the school year right. Usually, Scarlett Howell is booked for a haircut. Each stylist on her eight-person team in her salon, High Ground Hair Space, specializes in their interests, like barbering, vivid hair color, and curly hair. The salon offered its second annual gender-free haircut club where anyone part of the LGBTQ community could get a free gender-affirming haircut on Sunday. And so everything is done via online booking and we either book short haircuts or long haircuts. We don't do it by gender because hair doesn't have a gender. And so yeah, you can book online, you can see one of our team members. Um, and like I said, it's all, it's all free. Howell says the salon specifically holds the event before school starts to help students walking into a new school year. This past year, when the salon held the event for the first time, it booked 15 haircuts. This year, the number doubled and will include makeup and hairstyling tutorials. Last year, I think one of the things that like got me the most was really hearing feedback from the parents and the parents were just so grateful that like they had a space where their kids could come and just exist and didn't question anything about who they are or what they wanted or why they wanted it and so that was really lovely. Crisp haircuts, shoes, clothing, packs of pencils, notebooks, and a sturdy backpack are a few things parents and guardians purchase for the new school year. Families with kids from elementary school through high school are planning to spend about $864 on school items, about $15 more than 2021 school shopping season, according to the National Retail Federation. This past weekend, Fayetteville High School hosted Bulldog Blitz, where students, parents, and guardians could pick up schedules, apply for a parking permit, or get an updated school ID. Matt Mays is one of the parents in the school's cafeteria gearing their kids up for school. Well, yeah, I mean, everything is going up. The utilities are going up. Everything is just a little bit out of control right now, so everything's a little bit harder than it was, but, you know, making it. U.S. parents and guardians are shopping in the nation's second highest inflation in four decades. And in Northwest Arkansas, shoppers are experiencing higher costs of living. May's children will be entering as a sophomore and a senior. They do not need colorful pencil boxes or crayons, but costs add up. They become different. Instead of a supply list per se, they have things that they use all the time, but they also have extra expenses like senior pictures or like caps and gowns or things of that nature. Some people, including Mays, shopped for school supplies this past weekend because of the tax holiday. Arkansas is one of the states that participates in a tax-free weekend on school-related items. Michelle Miller is the new principal at Fayetteville High School and is the parent of a junior and seventh grader. Before stepping into different administrative roles, she taught math at the school. This past week, Miller and other administrators, teachers, staff, and school nurses ran booths as parents and students trickled in on the final day of Bulldog Blitz. 
So um, yesterday we had over a thousand people come through and so today we have a little bit less but still quite a few parents. We've run 10 to 7. She says families who need support for materials can get them through the school. Other organizations and programs in the region like Adopt-A-Kid Campaign and the Samaritan Community Center's Backpack for Kids event gather materials for students. Shannon Green is the business development manager at the Samaritan Community Center where the organization fills and distributes 4,000 backpacks for students. And so the school supplies was started probably about 22 years ago and, it, you know, was just school supplies in a Walmart bag and you kind of, we kind of gave what we what we had and it's grown from that to what it is today by just the community networking having a kid of my own and wanting her to have what tools she needs to be successful in school. Now a thousand of these backpacks go to Tyson plants to help employees and the rest go to the community. Green says since there are different supplies needed at different grade levels, the center focuses on the basics like erasers, pencils, and notebooks. At the event, the center has activities and offers free haircuts and food. It's just a, another cost for a family that compared to my one child versus to someone having four to five, eight kids, it's just another expense that we're trying to help families be able to use that to pay the rent, to pay the water bill, to pay their electric bill, to help keep them where the money's not so tight. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Arkansas continues seeing declining cases of COVID-19. The Department of Health reported 441 new infections yesterday. With recoveries outpacing new cases, the number of active cases fell by nearly 1,000 people, with about 12,000 currently feeling the effects of the virus. Hospitalizations were down by 24, with 369 people being treated statewide. One additional death was also reported. The Arkansas Secretary of State's office says a group aiming to remove Pope County from those that can have casinos failed to submit enough signatures to have that amendment placed on the November ballot. The group Fair Play for Arkansas was trying to make changes to Amendment 100, which was passed by voters in 2018 to allow casinos in four counties. In a letter to the group, Secretary of State John Thurston said not enough valid signatures were provided. Last week, the Arkansas Board of Election Commissioners rejected the ballot title for the proposal. Commissioners said the group leaving out details that a casino is under construction in Pope County made the language misleading. They also said a court case could determine whether the county can have a casino. The United States Marshals Museum is naming Ben Johnson as its new president and CEO. Johnson is currently the vice president of museum experience at the Putnam Museum and Science Center in Davenport, Iowa. He'll take over his new job on August 22nd. The announcement was made this morning. The Arkansas Chamber of Commerce is not pleased with the Inflation Reduction Act passed by the U.S. Senate Sunday. A press release from the state chamber calls the legislation a Trojan horse with potential long-term problems. Chamber's statement takes specific issues with corporate tax structure modifications and the increased staffing of the Internal Revenue Service. And the Arkansas Razorback football team will open the season ranked 22nd in the country in the USA Today coaches poll. It is the first time Arkansas has been ranked in that preseason poll since 2015. The Razorbacks will open up against number 23 Cincinnati and Fayetteville on September 3rd. KUAF is supported by Arcegas, a family-owned and operated coffee roastery with five cafes in downtown and South Fayetteville, including the Mill District on South School, offering seasonal menus, cocktails, state-of-the-art coffee bar, and more. The 2022 Roots Festival is August 25th through the 27th, featuring more than 25 musical artists in the main music hall at Fayetteville Public Library with Taj Mahal, Betty Lavette, Peter Rowan Bluegrass Band, and more on Friday, plus late-night stage performances at George's Majestic Lounge, Maxine's, and Roots HQ. For a full lineup of this year's performers and for tickets, FayettevilleRoots.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday, the Annie E. Casey Foundation released their 2022 Kids Count data book. Arkansas ranked 43rd for overall childhood well-being, down from 39th place in 2021. The report compiles data from the U.S. Census Bureau, American Community Survey, and the National Survey of Children's Health. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with President and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Lisa Hamilton, yesterday to get a closer look at the indicators and what they mean. 
So the good news is that the figures on economic well-being are encouraging. They show that before the pandemic, conditions were definitely improving for a lot of kids and families. And the data suggests that the child tax credit, which was expanded during the pandemic, helped a lot of people. Now, this data is from 2020. That's the most recent data we have. So we certainly need to monitor this data as we get more information um, during the pandemic and beyond. But um, we know families were um, going into the pandemic in a stronger place than they had been in the past. Unfortunately, even though um, there is some improvement in those indicators, 17% of children are still growing up in poverty, and the, the, the numbers are even higher for children of color, particularly African American and American Indian children, where that proportion is close to a third. Now, in terms of data that we are concerned about, um, the health indicators are concerning us greatly. Child and teen deaths are up, obesity is up, and more babies are being born at low birth weight. These are all slight increases, but we need to keep a close eye on these potentially troubling trends. And then for the first time in this data book, we looked at the issue of youth mental health. Between 2016 and 2020, the number of children who were reported as having anxiety or depression increased 26%. That's some seven, over 7 million children. And then I did want to dig into the, um, the poverty aspect. I know that childhood poverty is one of the areas where um, Arkansas ha- has struggled in, and we had a slight, uh, a slight improvement. Can you break down sort of how the report measures how poverty impacts you know, kids' future success? Well, we know that growing up in poverty is one of the highest risk factors for children. It means they aren't able to meet their basic needs for healthy food or a safe place to live or um, utilities. And so um, that's one of the most important um, indicators that we track. Overall, nationally, 17% of children are growing up in poverty. In Arkansas, that number is higher to 22%. In this data book, um, we do note that the numbers were moving in the right direction in Arkansas, down from 27% um, just five or six years ago. But this data, the most recent years we have are from uh, 2020. So um, we need to continue to make sure we pay attention to um, making sure families are economically stable, both in Arkansas and across the country. Right. And Arkansas as a whole, you know, this year in the data book, it dropped uh, from 39th to, to 43rd. And I'm just wondering, you know, what were the major factors that, that sank that score? Well, the rankings don't often change very much from year to year. And policy decisions in other states um, can affect those rankings, not just policy decisions in an individual state. But if states are making changes around the levels of economic support for families, such as earned income tax credit, um, if they're investing in education in ways that, for example, give more young children access to early education or expanding health care coverage to more children in those states, all of those factors can have an impact on the rankings from year to year. And since a lot of this data is from, from 2020, I'm wondering, you know, how much has the pandemic affected and impacted, um, you know, the shifts that you're seeing? Well, we are in the early days of getting data from the pandemic. The most recent data we have is from 2020. And it's going to be really important to get additional information as, as, as we see how children progress through the pandemic, particularly education data. A lot of that data was difficult to collect during the pandemic. Um, and we expect that there are going to be very concerning trends in education, given that children were forced to go to school remotely. And is there any indication of what the, you know, the long-term impacts of that may be, uh, especially of, of education-wise? Well, we know that children were forced to participate in school remotely. Many children did not have access to the technology or broadband access to do that. So we are very concerned about um, the education outcomes for children. But we know that the pandemic caused millions of families to lose jobs and income. And so there's a reason to be worried about 
um, economic trends in the future. And as we highlight in this data book, young people's mental health absolutely suffered during the pandemic. And we want to encourage policymakers to take steps uh, to act now so that our children can rebound um, from this crisis to make sure that their basic needs are met, to make sure that they have um, mental health services where they need them, for example, in schools, um, and that they have access to health insurance um, so that their parents can afford mental health services. We've got um, some good trends um, that we reveal in this book that we need to make sure we sustain and, and uh, state policymakers and federal policymakers can do a lot to, to help our kids rebound during this time. And are there any areas where you've seen national or state level policymakers, you know, making changes that, that you feel are directly addressing these issues and making an impact? I'd say the biggest um, uh, policy decision that helped families during the pandemic was the expansion of the child tax credit by providing monthly payments to families at a time when many lost income and jobs. It was a crucial support to enable parents to pay their rent, to keep food on the table, to keep the lights on, to provide access to the internet so the kids could learn um, though the um, child tax credit expansion has expired, we know that is a critical, was a critical resource to families and can, could continue to help them as we emerge from the pandemic. And then are there any um, specific policies you think haven't, haven't been quite addressed yet that, that need to be? Well, in this data book, we lift up the issue of youth mental health and the need to focus on increasing resources to support um, young people. Um, they need greater access to, to mental health services, um, particularly in schools, um, and making sure that more children have access to health insurance. 5% of the children in this country still don't have um, health insurance, and that means that they're at risk of not having their physical and, and mental health needs addressed. And one of the, the statistics or the issues that was raised in that data book that I thought was pretty striking was the rise in, in child and teen deaths internationally. Um, can you break down kind of what that means and, and where that's coming from? Well, the um, increase in child deaths is largely due to gun deaths and overdose. And um, we know that um, the country has made great strides in the past in reducing child and teen deaths particularly um, in investing in public health strategies. Um, we did a lot to reduce vehicular deaths, which used to be a leading cause of death for young people. Um, but safety experts and scientists and policymakers came together and implemented policies like seatbelt laws and child safety seat laws that really made a difference. And so we hope that leaders can apply that same type of problem solving and creativity to address um, the current um, uh, loss of life due to um, overdose and, and gun death. Right. And I'm wondering if there were any specifics from this year's data book that really stood out to you. Well, I uh, am certainly um, concerned about the economic well-being of children. Growing up in poverty is a huge risk factor for them. I'm uh, very concerned about the health indicators all four of the health indicators at the national level were going in the, the uh, trending in the wrong direction. And I am very concerned about youth mental health. When we have data increasing um, as dramatically as it, it has around um, youth mental health, 26% increase in, in anxiety and depression for our young people, um, there really is a cause for action. And um, I am encouraged that um, there's widespread consensus that there's a need to act. Um, and I hope our policymakers will, will use this data to do so. Right. And then, you know, for people who, who you know, just regular listeners, um, why is this data book important? Why compile this information? And what do you hope um, someone, you know, a parent, a teacher, just the regular person gets out of this information? The Annie Casey Foundation has been producing the Kids Count Data Book for more than 30 years because we know that children are the future of this country, and we want to empower 
uh, and equip policymakers and practitioners to have the best data to make the best decisions they can for our young people. This data helps us understand every year how kids are doing. Are they growing up with the basic economic supports they need? Are they doing well in school? Are they healthy and have the access to, to health care that they need? How are the communities and neighborhoods that they're growing up in? We can take steps to improve all these areas of children's lives, and there's a role for all of us in doing that. And so we hope that um, this data book can be a tool for policymakers, um, for school leaders, for um, parents um, to know how kids are doing and where we need to focus to help them thrive. Uh, we know that kids have been through so much since the start of COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic, but kids and families are finding ways to weather these storms, and we see lots of reasons to be optimistic. Young people today are starting out with greater access to health care, education, and information than prior generations, and we know that all of us want to do more to ensure brighter futures for kids and families, and I know that we can. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with me. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. That was Lisa Hamilton, president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. You can find the complete Kids Count data book online at aecf.org. Here's one way to create a great summer meal. Combine the talents of a Miami-raised chef, cheese made in Bentonville, and the work of dairy farmers from the Missouri Ozarks. That's the recipe for the next kitchen table dinner presented by Appleseeds on Thursday, August 18th. The chef is Sam Diaz, who, while raised in Miami, now operates the restaurant Barreto in Bentonville. The cheese will be provided by Sweet Freedom Cheese, located on the 8th Street Market in Bentonville. And the dairy farmers are Mark and Jonah Fellwalk from Fellwalk Dairy Farm in Monette, Missouri. The meal on the 18th starts with a cocktail hour at 6, followed by the multi-course meal at 7. It all happens on the Appleseeds Teaching Farm next to Gully Park on Old Wire Road in Fayetteville. Appleseeds is marking its 15th year as a nonprofit teaching children about food, farming, and nutrition. More about the organization and the dinner at appleseedsnwa.org. Now I'm hungry. Yeah. A new documentary from Arkansas PBS explores the importance of soil. Dirt will delve into how Arkansas farmers, ranchers, and others are conserving their soil, water, air, and other natural resources, improving their operations, and helping the environment with sustainability methods. The broadcast premiere is Thursday, September 1st, but there will be a free advanced screening Thursday, August 18th at 7 p.m. at the Central Arkansas Library System's Ron Robinson Theater in Little Rock. More information at myarpbs.org. And from dirt to water, the Beaver Watershed Alliance will host a virtual discussion about septic systems in northwest Arkansas and their impact on environmental health in the region. This, too, taking place Thursday, August 18th from noon until 1 in the afternoon. H2 Ozarks Program Manager Shelley Dare-Smith will lead the session. Landowners and septic owners are especially encouraged to attend to learn about maintenance and funding opportunities. This conversation is open to all. It is free. But registration is required. More information can be found at beaverwatershedalliance.org. The Giving Tree Back to School Edition returns. All this week, KUAF Public Radio is working with Second Helping NWA to gather school supplies for children in our communities that may need help getting some items. Your donations will help to fill 24 donated backpacks that Second Helping NWA will then distribute at Grandview Apartments next Sunday during the Sunday for the Soul Backpack Giveaway event. You can help fill a backpack for a child by bringing school supplies like packs of glue sticks, 24 packs of crayons and colored pencils, packs of number two pencils, packages of wide-ruled loose-leaf paper, and more. For the full list of needed items, go to KUAF.com. School is just around the corner. Help make every child's school year the best it can be. Again, needed items at KUAF.com. 
This is Ozarks at Large. Senator John Bozeman is one of the co-sponsors for new legislation that moves to regulate cryptocurrency in the United States. Senator Bozeman is joined by Senators Debbie Stebenow, a Democrat from Michigan, as the two sit atop the Senate Agriculture Committee, and they propose that crypto should be regulated by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. I spoke with Senator Bozeman last week over the phone and asked what this regulation will accomplish. Well, I think there's a couple things that are very important about this legislation. It's very bipartisan. Myself and uh, Senator Stabenow are are introducing it along with two colleagues, Senator Booker and Senator Thune. Uh, So two Democrats, two Republicans. And this is an an effort to regulate the crypto world. Right now, it's largely unregulated. It's the Wild West. And as a result, uh, the consumers are, you know, are, are not being uh, adequately protected. So what we're trying to do is, with this regulation, is it's very simple. It just puts the jurisdiction of regulation uh, with the Commodities Future uh, Commission. Uh, and the industry is all for that. They want to be regulated. They understand that the consumers uh, deserve protection. Most of the crypto world does a, a good job of doing the right thing, although there's some rogue actors. So this is just an effort to rein them in. You know, we've seen the price of Bitcoin, one of the cryptocurrencies, probably the, the one most people are most familiar with. We've seen a lot of rise and fall, especially recently with that. Uh, why is now the time to have an oversight committee for cryptocurrency? Well, we, we've needed this all along, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, the crypto uh, in its early days was a small entity. When you look worldwide, it's grown dramatically. It's estimated that one in five Americans in some way or fashion uh, have uh, some sort of, uh, you know, dependency on crypto in the sense that it affects them. So it has grown dramatically, and so it's just reached the point where uh, it needs a regulatory agency. The industry itself, when you visit with all of the crypto people, uh, I wouldn't say all, but almost all, feel like they need regulation in order for them to go forward so that uh, big financial institutions can invest with them and have some certainty that, that you know, everybody's doing the right thing. So uh, it's unique in the sense that uh, this is an industry. Most industries don't want regulation or right. increased regulation. This is one that actually does. Why you, Senator Bozeman? Why why are you the one who thinks uh, you should you should be a part of this oversight committee? You know that's really a good question, and uh, the reason being is myself. I'm the ranking member on agriculture, and then uh, the chair of the agriculture committee is Senator Stabenow from Michigan. And the reason that we're involved is that the commodities future the commodities future trading commission is under our jurisdiction. Uh, this this uh, Commodities uh, Trading Commission was actually put in place for agricultural commodities and things many, many years ago. Uh, that's grown into swaps and derivatives and all kinds of things. But most people feel like uh, the industry and then most people that, that look at this seriously outside of the industry feel like the crypto world is more of a commodity than it is a security. So the Securities Exchange Commission regulates securities, and then the Commodities Futures uh, regulates commodities. So that's that's the reason that she and I are involved. Uh, it, it makes it much easier for it to go to one committee. There are several others that have other bills out there that are much more complex than ours. And as a result, they've gone to many committees of jurisdiction, uh, when you get a lot of people involved, it just makes it that much more difficult to get the law enacted. So our bill is very, very simple. It essentially says that uh, uh, the crypto world needs to be regulated. The place to do that is with the uh, commodities futures versus the securities exchange. Right. When we think of securities exchange, we think of you know the stock market. Yes. Commodities, we're thinking more along the lines of soybeans or corn or those sorts of things, right? Or gold, you know, things like that. Right. Physical things. Uh-huh. Why was it important for you uh, to make this committee bipartisan? 
Well, you know, I know the public wants this to work in a bipartisan way, but you know, protecting the consumer, this isn't about Republicans and Democrats. They they all get equally hurt when you've got uh, irresponsible players uh, taking advantage. So this is just uh, just good government. It's it's people coming together. Uh, when you look at us, uh, you know, uh, we're very different as far as a lot of things. But this is one thing that that the four of us agree is that the consumers need some protection. Also, the, at the rate of growth of the crypto world, uh, I think you you it poses a problem eventually if it's not regulated and uh, you have a, you know a lot of bad actors in play it could even pose a systemic risk to all of our financial uh, system so it's a serious thing uh, the good news is is that we have two good commissioners commissioner gensler on the securities exchange a lot of a lot of the crypto products actually are securities uh, crypto is such a broad thing, but most of them are, you know, it's felt like they're commodities. Uh, the chairman of the Commodities Futures is uh, uh, Commissioner Benham. Uh, these guys are two guys that are that are very bright, that are working together to figure this out. Uh, but again, our our bill is very simple. It just says we need some regulation. The vast majority of this needs to go into the Commodities Future uh, Commission versus the other. Have you heard from President Biden on this piece of legislation? Uh, the administration, President Biden, hasn't gotten directly involved yet. Uh, what we are hearing, though, is from the industry, uh, they they appear to be very supportive. The process is such that you introduce the bill, which we did this week, and then now we will be hearing from the industry, uh, you know, what they think about it. So far, it's been very positive. We'll have a hearing uh, in September, and we'll actually get uh, you know different people representing the the industry. We'll get different people from uh, the from the from the Commodities Futures uh, Commission, you know, talking about why they feel like that's the place it ought to be. All of the different stakeholders, and really, you know, just ask a bunch of questions, you know, from them. And then once we have the hearing, then we'll vote it out of committee. And then, uh, uh, you know, get it on the floor of the Senate and get it passed. So it's a long process, but uh, so far, uh, I think that we've worked really hard to consult all of the stakeholders, try and anticipate, uh, you know, concerns and deal with those ahead of time. As you can imagine, when you're dealing with something like this, this is pretty complex. But uh, we've got. Uh, Four of us have a great sta- great staffs that have worked really hard to, to make this thing uh, uh, ready to be introduced. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Right. You know, as you said, it's it's it the the world around cryptocurrency can be a little confusing, can be pretty complex. As someone you know personally who has listened to a lot of journalists and experts talk about cryptocurrency, I still don't feel like I could always <laughs> confidently have no. a conversation with people around it. So. You know, yeah. what does it take for you personally to get up to speed to ask about these things in this quickly evolving space so that when, you know, we see clips of of you and your committee talking about this on Twitter, you know, it's not people making fun of you for saying something silly or saying something that, you know, doesn't really match what uh what you're talking about when it comes to crypto. No, it's, you know, it's really interesting because the uh, I was like you, and, and even after you know studying it for a while, it was still you know. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have is that that uh, people want to invest in this, they don't really understand. Yeah. There's different products out there, but just kind of wrapping your head around something that takes uh, a lot of energy to produce and it's kind of out there in space, and and yet you know it's worth a significant amount of money. But um, we've worked really hard, you know, to understand that the biggest thing behind crypto that's so important that that really is going to alter the way that financial services are done in the future is the blockchain. Mm-hmm. You know, the way this is done, the way that you can go directly to this entity versus going through a, an intermediary, and that is eventually really is going to change the way that we do financial services. So, the concept is very important. 
One of the biggest challenges that we have, though, is educating other members of Congress as to, as to what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then, as you point out, you're somebody that studied this and and you know listened to others. I, I've had the opportunity to visit with, you know, many many people in the industry and and just ask them you know questions and 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 learn in that regard. But it is complex, so you have to educate other members. And uh, we're working really hard to do that. Yeah. Senator, do you see yourself as a crypto optimist? You know, I I think it's it it depends on the on the product. I'm I I can't I wouldn't tell you that I've invested my pension plan (laughs) in crypto (laughs) and some that have recently have probably regretted that they have. But but I will say this about it is it's not going to go away. It's something that that's here. It, it's growing exponentially worldwide, and so the United States needs to be involved and and needs to regulate it. It needs to help uh, make sure that those that do choose to invest that they are protected. And uh, you know, you mentioned the volatility of it, and, and it is very volatile right now. You look at the stock market, you know, and that's that's something that that you know through. Our pension plans and savings does get invested in, in ways, but that's been very volatile too. But but there's some protection there, versus no hardly any protection at all in the uh, crypto world. Right. You know the the kind of double edged sword of cryptocurrency at this point is it's very liberating that anyone can get involved in crypto, but it's also pretty dangerous that anyone can get involved. Right. 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 You need to understand what you're what you're getting into. And that's what this is all about, you know, identifying risk and then making sure that the people that you're dealing with, you know, are not uh, crypto salesmen that, that uh, you know, essentially uh, don't have a lot of backing, not doing it for the, for the right reason. Senator Bozeman, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. U.S. Senator John Bozeman. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Jones Center in downtown Springdale presents The Worst Case Scenario Survival Experience, an interactive exhibition for kids and families that puts survival skills to the test. Activities include a quicksand ball pit, climbing a wall, picking a lock, and more. Tickets at thejonescenter.net. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. You can be with us anytime and listen to any interview or story you may have missed by subscribing to our podcast version of the show. Downloads and subscriptions are free and they are available wherever you already receive your podcasts. You can also ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the latest edition of our show. And you can sift through past shows, stories, and interviews at OzarksAtLarge.com. Arkansas legislators are together again at the state capitol as a special session called by Governor Asa Hutchinson begins today. We know lawmakers are ready to take up some tax cut measures and earmark funds to implement recommendations for school safety measures. The governor says there isn't enough support to bring up teacher pay raises, though some Democrats say they may indeed try to get that conversation going this week. Roby Brock with our partner, Talk Business and Politics, asked John Brummett, a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, about this special session and whether he expects any fireworks. I think I find myself in rare agreement in one respect with Senator Alan Clark, of all people, who was speaking to the Garland County Tea Party last week, and he said this session is not uh, necessary. I don't need to do it. He meant it for entirely different reasons. I was for it in the beginning. This thing started with the governor having this reasonable idea to do as other states have done and find a way to give some direct financial relief to people for the raging gas prices, which are now down, uh, and for grocery prices for inflation. Legislature said, no, we can't find everybody. We'll give money to dead people. So, uh, so let's just accelerate to full immediate effect these tax cuts, which is not it's not direct one-time stimulus for inflation. It's an ongoing payroll thing for most people, mostly for high incomes. Uh, then, the, then the governor proposed the teacher the teacher raises to to really spike our to, to get competitive in the region and reward teachers who need more money, particularly for the hardships uh, that they've endured. 
and the Republican legislative leadership, Republican membership won't do that, which leaves what you just said. We're going to do the permanent tax cut, and then there's this $50 million. We're going to, is that how much it is? We're going to set aside, uh, and, and we're going to set up a grant program for school safety improvements. We're going to do that as if it's an emergency in August, when after it's approved, we've got to go through this appropriate process to set up regulations for how the grant program will work. And then we'll have to go through the process of, P of school districts applying for it. You could do this in January, if Sarah Sanders, if she's governor, would go along with it, uh, for a supplemental appropriation. You could work in the meantime on the regulation should it get passed. There's really not an urgency for this session. Uh, and yet we're going to have it. Uh, and, uh, and, and oh, there's going to be a middle, get this. They've added a little $150 a person, $300 per couple, uh, moderate income uh, tax credit for as inflation. They want to decide it. We need to we need to show some money to the people between 24 and 87 thousand dollars a year. That's a lot of our Kansas. Let's show them a little something. Let's give them 150 about tax credit, 300 for married couples. A tax credit. Uh, that's next April when you file your taxes. That's a line after you calculate your taxes and you can take that much off. But they said you can't, it's not refundable. You know, you can only reduce your tax burden, but it's not refundable. And that's like calling, calling 911 and, and they say, well, we'll be there in April, basically. I mean, that's, 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 that's deferred uh, relief. Everything is, the whole thing has, in my mind, amounted to very little. The policy is wrong on tax cuts, I think. Uh, the, the middle class relief is nothing. The teacher salaries became the great item, including a rally yesterday with several hundred, some said 2,000, I think a few less than that, on the Capitol steps, uh, making the case for teacher salaries, which has emboldened Democrats and teachers and activists. So uh, I'm not sure what this, uh, that this is going to amount to much. There may be drama. Somebody may want to want to open up uh, the abortion issue to change it one way or the other. But I think the leadership and the governor are going, to, and are going to hold tight for just do this, get in and out. And it takes two thirds vote to change that. And I don't think they could get it. So you may be seeing more potential excitement or significance to it. In the end, I'm just wondering why. Yeah, I think that there, the drama for me to be watching is that I do think that someone will make a move to try to include teacher pay on there because they feel like there may be two thirds of a vote there. If you peeled off some Republicans and got all the Democrats, you could at least have a debate on that. Uh, uh, bless you, Roby. You, you bail me out. That's the biggest issue I left out. I was, I was at that rally yesterday and I happened to see a few legislators there and they're texting and I'm saying, what are y'all texting about? Uh, and they said, we're talking to Senator uh, Representative Godfrey about, about the teacher raise bill. She's going to carry it on the House side, the Democrats version, which is a perfectly logical, more fiscally prudent bill than what uh, uh, Hutchison proposed. And they're working on it. And I, I was thinking, do they really think it's got a chance? I think they have a remote, faint hope. Uh, that it has a chance, but at least they'd like to force Republicans to tell those 2,000 or nearly 2,000 teachers out there on the Capitol lawn, uh, no. They, they just like to, because they've got themselves a good issue, and they're right on it, and their proposal is good. So, yeah, I think you're going to see probably generating from the House side, I'm pretty sure that's what it's going to be, at least an effort that, that's going to get our attention, that's going to get in the public eye, that the Democrats are trying to do it and the Republicans won't let them, which is not a bad message for Democrats in this day and age in Arkansas. Well, and who knows, maybe they'll be successful in uh, convincing some folks to change their mind. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I mentioned that abortion, not on the special session call. Uh, some states are starting to deal with that. Now we saw Kansas about a week ago. Uh, with a dramatic vote, 59% to 41% want to keep abortion rights in that state constitution. This is Kansas we're talking about here. This was a surprising outcome. Uh, I noted, too, that almost 200,000 more people voted on that one particular issue than voted in both the Republican and Democratic primaries for governor combined. This drove some turnout. What's your analysis, uh, now having about a week to kind of digest those results, what do you, what do you make of that vote? Three words you said there, kind of magic, drove some turnout. People coming to vote on the abortion issue 
who really weren't otherwise engaged in the political process, weren't going to vote in, in, in other issues on the ballot in the primaries. Uh, that, that has kind of a, dropped a little bit of a bomb on political conventional thinking. First, Kansas is a state thought to be as conservative as Arkansas, a lot like Arkansas. It can't be. I don't think that vote would happen in Arkansas, but we can, we can think that it might. But these midterms, the whole deal is about who's motivated, you know, and, and Republicans are motivated uh, and Democrats have been downcast because the inflation's killing them and the Democrats have been inept. Now, all of a sudden, the Democrats are passing a simple, clear bill. They're going to they're gonna help people on their Medicaid prescription drug prices. They're going to do a few things on, on energy conversion. Two or three things that we can say, they're going to get that passed. It's not going to run up the deficit. CBO says it's not going to fuel inflation. Then in Kansas, middle of, right out there in the middle of America, uh, swing voters, it looks like, uh, came out. And women, we must assume, to vote overwhelmingly in, 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 in one of our more conservative states, not to not to take the right to uh, abortion choice out of the Constitution. And it's, I'm not ready to say this change, the, the, whole, the whole midterm climate has changed, but I'm ready to say it might have, you know? Uh, uh, we, we've historically said people talk a lot about abortion, but the bases stay where they are and it doesn't drive turnout otherwise. Well, that's not true in Kansas. And uh, uh, so this, it's a big thing. It's a big thing, Roby. And uh, we're going to have to, the, the idea that we might wake up the day after the midterms and say, wow, did you know this was going to happen? Did you know that uh, the exit polls were going to show they were all there because of Roe v. Wade? Uh, possibly. I'm not ready to predict it. I'm not ready to get my personal hopes up on that issue. But you can't deny uh, what happened. And uh, maybe it's some sort of weird aberration in Kansas. But it's changed. It's changed to how we're feeling about our politics right now. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and you can find his work at ArkansasOnline.com. He talked with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find more at TalkBusiness.net. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more available at amazium.org. KUAF is supported by Greenacre Easy Living, a small assisted living located in Rogers and serving the elderly of Arkansas under the same ownership since 1992. 631-1552 or greenacreeasyliving.com for more information. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we're scheduled to have a conversation with journalist and music historian John Lomax III. He'll be at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art later this month with musician and songwriter Michael Martin Murphy to discuss the impact of contemporary Western music and how it relates to the current exhibition at the Momentary, Let's Talk, Art of the West. The Talk is Thursday, August 18th at 7 p.m. and is a partnership with House of Songs. And later this month, we're bringing the Fayetteville Roots Festival live radio broadcast back for the first time in three years, like we did many years before the pandemic. We'll have some of the festival performers on stage with us at the Fayetteville Public Library playing for you there and here on the radio. Now, a lot has happened since we could all get together safely the last time in the summer of 2019. This year, we're going to be in the new large event center that's opened since that time. But don't worry, some things will be the same as before. The music will be absolutely free, and we will be live on the air so you can join us in person at the library or right where you are now. This will all happen Friday, August 26th. We're going to have more details very soon. And then this Friday at the library, I'll be hosting a conversation with Henry Rollins, the former lead singer for Black Flag. He's also an author, a speaker, an actor, and poet. We'll be engaged in an hour-long conversation that begins with the title, Libraries Are Punk Rock. And that will cover censorship, technology, free speech, and public libraries. Our conversation is going to be in that new event center. Doors will open Friday night at 530 
The line will queue up beginning at 5.15, but not before. By the way, this is a free first-come, first-served event. It's going to be capped at 650 people. You can find out more about Friday's event at faylib.org. But wait, there's more live activity with a KUAF angle. That's right. Yes, we are working on uh, planning a live event for Natural Election, our politics podcast here with KUAF and Ozarks at Large. You can find out more information about that coming soon. We just met with the host of the event. Do you think we should tell them who that's going to be, Kyle? I wait, Sure. Yeah, That's a great partner of ours. Yes, yes. We're going to be meeting over at the Prior Center. So look for more details about that, about who will be involved in that conversation. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletters to find out more information about that coming soon. That's going to be in September. Yes. And the, Okay, so to review, this Friday, mm-hmm. now this isn't on, on the radio, so you got to be there in person. Right. But this Friday, I'll be with Henry Rollins at the Fayetteville Public Library. Mm-hmm. Then... Friday, August 26, Ozarks at Large, the library in Fayetteville Roots teaming up for the live on-the-air Roots Festival program. Yes. And then in September, and we'll tell you the exact date a little bit later, we're teaming up with Prior Center for the natural election uh, live event. That's right. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A 1989 movie about a rock and roll legend was partially filmed in Arkansas. Dennis Quaid portrayed rocker Jerry Lee Lewis in Great Balls of Fire, a film covering his early life and the period in the 1950s when he married his 13-year-old cousin, played by Winona Ryder, and damaged his rise to stardom. Alec Baldwin played Lewis's cousin, televangelist Jimmy Swaggart, in the film. While most of the movie was filmed in Memphis, where Lewis recorded in Sun Studios, several scenes were shot in the Crittenden County towns of Marion and West Memphis. Lewis was impressed by Quaid's interpretation of his songs and suggested that he sing them in the movie, but the actor ultimately lip-synced Lewis's recordings. The hands of Jason D. Williams of El Dorado, who is often compared to Lewis, were shown in piano-playing scenes. Film critic Roger Ebert found the movie simple-minded rock and roll history, but gave Quaid high marks for his energetic stage performances. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Dry Fork. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Anna Pope, and Roby Brock. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Matthew produced today's program right here in Studio 120. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. We return tomorrow with another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. The Northwest Arkansas Land Trust and North Song Wild Bird Rehabilitation will host a rehabilitated barred owl release at uh, Wilson Springs Preserve in Fayetteville, August 13th from 6 until 8. The 13th, help me out, is that Saturday? Sure. (laughs) I'll have to look at the calendar here in a second. Uh, It's August 13th from 6 until 8 p.m. 30-minute oral presentation about the background of the barred owl patient and the impact that it will have on the Wilson Springs Preserve. Public is invited. And then in Harrison, Wait Until Dark editions will be held August 12th and 13th at the Lyric Theater in downtown Harrison. Uh, Auditions available for ages 18 and up. One part for a child age 10 to 12. Also available for more theater company of the Ozarks.com. Wait Until Dark, one of the scariest movies I saw as a kid. Never seen it. Audrey Hepburn. I've heard of her. Yep. Yes. Um, She is blind. Okay. In this New York flat. Okay. Her husband, a young Richard Crenna, uh-huh. uh, may or may not be a bad guy. Okay. And then there is a very young Alan Arkin. Okay. Who is looking for this doll that has heroin smuggled inside of it. Oh, Lord. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, I haven't seen it in years. I don't know if it would hold up as scary now, but, whew. and it's based on a play that was on Broadway. Uh-huh. So anyway, this will be at... Uh, the Lyric Theater in downtown Harrison. I don't know. All right. I am. (laughs) I'm a big Audrey Hepburn fan, you know. Yes. Did you know that? I did know that because we talk about it constantly. (laughs) Sorry. All right. Uh, We have another new show tomorrow. I will not mention Audrey Hepburn tomorrow. I hope you do, actually. Well, maybe I will. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, Matthew. Thanks for spending time with me. Thank you, Kyle.